Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tim Blake Nelson is an actor. He was born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he's Jewish. Growing up, he says there weren't many other families like his in town. And you might think that, you know, kids being kids, maybe that made him feel bullied sometimes, singled out, or kind of weird. But that's not so, says Tim. Kids wanted to come to your bar mitzvah. They were astounded to sit there and listen to the Hebrew. Couldn't believe that they were hearing that. It was exciting, fascinating. There's that line, there's a line in uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, Outer Dark, and somebody asks another character, do you know what a Jew is? And the character responds, well, they're them old-timey people in the Bible. And that's, that's what I felt growing up, that people embraced us, treated us as special friends. It's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, Tim Blake Nelson, star of the new Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. He majored in classics. He studied a lot. He actually didn't do a lot of acting until he got what you would probably call a very strong push from his mom. And she said, look, why don't you spend the summer acting at one of these summer theaters? I said, oh, mom, it's not that easy. And she basically said, don't give me your excuses. You have no family. You don't have any financial concerns right now. You don't even have a girlfriend. You're totally unaffiliated. Go get a job at a summer theater. Then Mary Randolph Carter. She's an author and an expert on what she calls junk, collecting old stuff from antique stores and flea markets. She's got a whole design philosophy behind it, too. And I think that when you do find and borrow borrow things that have had that are old and weathered and tattered in some cases and patched that's evidence of a life lived then finally i will tell you about the distinctly not fancy power of the tv sitcom police squad that's all coming up on bullseye let's go it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne tim blake nelson is an actor character actor, basically. He's from Tulsa, and you can hear a little bit of his accent. He plays that accent up in some of his roles. Maybe he'll play a desert-dwelling outsider, a corporate type from Texas who wears boots, maybe a Faulkner character. It's also made him an unforgettable part of some great movies, like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The Coen Brothers classic. Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's a straight and narrow from here on out. And heaven everlasting's my reward. Delver, what are you talking about? We got bigger fish to fry. The preacher said all my sins is washed away, including that piggly wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I thought you said you was innocent of those charges. Well, I was lying. Now he's starring in another Coen Brothers movie. It's called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It just came out on Netflix. It's a Western made up of six vignettes. Each story is about the Old West told in archetypes. A bounty hunter, a wagoneer, the big goofy gold miner with a big goofy beard and a burro. The kind of stuff that makes up the Coen's bread and butter. 
But like most great Cohen films, it's more about how those archetypes get used. In Buster Scruggs, they're tweaked, caricatured, sometimes subverted, and it's all done in the service of bigger themes, stuff like love, capitalism, justice, and death. My guest Tim Blake Nelson plays the title character in the movie, Buster Scruggs, star and subject of the first vignette. He's a handsome, kind of flamboyantly dressed singing cowboy with a revolver in his holster and a guitar around his back, a little bit like Gene Autry. He has a way with words. Like in this scene from the very beginning of the movie, Buster, who's played by Tim, is on horseback. He's ambling along a canyon in the kind of desert that you might see in a Wiley e. Coyote cartoon. And as we're about to hear, he turns to the camera to introduce himself. And by the way, uh, one visual thing about halfway through this, he pulls out a wanted poster with his picture on it that labels him the misanthrope. Let's listen. A song never fails to ease my mind out here in the West where the distances are great and the scenery monotonous. Additionally, my pleasing baritone seems to inspire old Dan here and keep me in good heart during the day's measure of hoof clops. Ain't that right, Dan? <laughs> Maybe some of y'all have heard of me. Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. I got other handles, nicknames, appellations, and cognomens, but this one here... I don't consider to be even halfway earned. Misanthrope? I don't hate my fellow man, even when he's tiresome and surly and tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material. And him it finds in it calls for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Ain't that right, Dan? Tim Blake Nelson, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. I have to say that I laughed almost embarrassingly loud in a hushed, sincere, serious critic screening of this film uh, when you banged on the guitar strings as you swung the guitar over to your back. Well, that's 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 Joel and Ethan. Uh, there's a, a technique uh, which they developed with their sound designer, Skip Levsky. Uh, called the hubcap, mm-hmm. uh, and in a Cohen film, whenever something is disturbed and usually ends up being dispatched to a resting place off screen, you'll get a little bit of an extra sound uh, from it, like and a hubcap that's rolling off a. You're uh, doing the gesture uh, of a settling uh, hubcap. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, and they call it the hubcap. Uh, Joel and Ethan use sound, I think, better than any other filmmakers around, at least of which I know, other than maybe uh, Steven Spielberg. It's such a, a presence in their movies. And, uh, and of course, what you're describing there is definitely foleyed. Uh, so they put that in and sweetened it. And, and that's just Joel and Ethan to a T. When you're watching a film, often the sound is entirely transparent to you like you don't the sound is is often designed to be unnoticeable and because all of the aesthetics in a Coen brother Coen brothers movie are 15% more saturated like everything is is heightened in this odd way just that moment of the guitar making a noise it's, it, it like makes you notice the artifice of film because guitars do make a noise when you do that but they don't make a noise when you do that in a movie. 
That's precisely right. And Joel and Ethan are always, as you as you imply, making movies about movies. That's always a part of what's going on, and it's part of what delights one when when you see a Coen Brothers movie. You know that's happening, and you just want more and more of it. It's why I like to say that their films are, above everything else, generous. There's this idea of the Old West as this lawless world, but so much of the Western genre is about the order being imposed on it by a good guy. Um, you know, somebody riding a sheriff or whatever it is, right? And in this film, it's a story about the lawlessness and grotesquerie of the Old West as an idea, right? Like that there's no rules and anything can happen and people die and stuff. But it leaves out the part about someone coming in to make the rules (laughs) like it's really just about yes living in a lawless world is brutal and terrifying and also the actual world that we live in all of our ideas of like what the rules are are more tenuous than we give them credit for i think that's certainly true uh and joel and ethan if they're anything are leaving their their personal beliefs aside they are decidedly old testament in that the the universe whether it's god conducting it or some other force uh is an unpredictable wrathful and violent place and the more man tries to control it and make sense of it the more tragic uh his demise in the case of buster scruggs he's got a code which is uh, uh, he'll never start a fight, but he'll always end one lethally. And they've written a character who would be a great friend but a terrible enemy uh, for you to have. But even he can't control his own destiny because he, when he least expects it, has his own reckoning. Could you already do the things that singing cowboys can do? I mean, you're riding, playing... Uh, singing, shooting. I think those are the top four skills involved in being a singing cowboy, right? It was uh, – it, it, I so I didn't know how to play the guitar. Uh, I had to learn to do that. And I certainly didn't know how to twirl pistols. I ride well enough, but riding without being able to hold the reins and steer the horse uh, with my hands and therefore needing to do it with my knees – that necessitated literally, and I'm not exaggerating, uh, five and a half months of prep because it has to look like he's done it all his life. And I didn't want to be on set worrying about whether my G chord was was right. So I just I had to learn it to the extent to where I could just literally walk around the house playing the guitar while carrying on a conversation with someone um, where I could twirl the pistols while talking with my wife and and spin the um, the gun right into my holster without having to look at it, et cetera, et cetera. But that's the Peter Pan life of an actor. It's, it's, it's constant regeneration. So getting to play a part like this at age 53, it's, that's, that was my, that's been my dream. Uh, uh, so uh, it, it was a great challenge. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
My guest is Tim Blake Nelson, star of the new Coen Brothers movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I, I want to play a scene of you, my guest, Tim Blake Nelson, uh, in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's about three inmates who escape from jail in search of buried treasure, if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen, seen it, come on, get your act together. Uh, about halfway through the movie, uh, Pete, who's played by John Turturro, goes missing, and Delmar, played by my guest, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, decides that that uh, Turturro's character got turned into a toad. And so when Delmar walks into a movie theater and finds Pete back in handcuffs on a chain gang, uh, he is quite surprised. Do not seek the treasure. It's a bushwhack. They're fixing an ambush. Do not seek the treasure. We thought... You was a toad. We thought you was a toad. Do not seek the treasure. Right there. What's the picture? I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, it's... It, the character is entirely different from uh, your character in Buster Scruggs, but it's the whole thing is so mannered that if there's any winking, the whole house of cards would collapse. And so you just have to have this beautiful, absolute commitment to the reality of that manneredness. Yeah, that's what the Cullen brothers ask for. and And I think that's why you see them casting... Time and time again, actors who've been trained uh, formally in heightened language. So Fran, John Turturro, Michael Stuhlbarg in A Serious Man, I, uh, you know, all so many of us, almost everyone in their sort stable, their stable yeah, yeah, went to school, uh, went to a drama, drama school and studied Shakespeare and Shaw and um, restoration comedy. All of us. And what that trains you to do is to pick up a script, internalize the terms of its reality, and play them without any, um, without any uh, sense of irony or seeming uh, over-intentionality or histrionics. You simply accept that that's the truth. It's a heightened world, and you become a part of it uh, and and engage with it on its terms. You lift yourself up to its terms. And I don't think that I would be able to do what I've tried to do for the for the Coens and the parts that I've had uh, without having had that training. Now, here's the thing that I'm confused about, Tim Blake Nelson. You went to literally two of the best schools in the world for college and graduate school. You studied possibly actually the two least practical things <laughs> you can study. You went and got a degree in classics at a, at a top-tier Ivy League university. And then you went off to arts college <laughs> at Juilliard. <laughs> so – 
did you just have older siblings who had already broken down your parents or were they like, well, if you're going to go into the arts or into scholarship, you got to do it 10 out of 10. And if you're doing it 10 out of 10, it's okay. I think it was probably a bit more of the latter. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we weren't, um, the Soros family or something, but I definitely had resources to fall back on. And so, and my education was paid for by my parents. So I graduated without debt and that was an incredible help. Uh, I'm not going to lie about that, uh, or try to mislead. So that, so I didn't have certain pressures on me that others do. I think my father probably wondered a bit about what was going to come of all this. Uh, and I don't blame him for that. My mother did a very astonishing thing, however, which was during my freshman year in college, she came up to to visit me and we were at dinner. And she she said, well, what are you going to do this summer? It was the spring. And I said, well, I think I'm going to come home and, and stay with you. And my parents uh, were divorced at this point. And the, revor- the, the divorce was fairly recent. And so she was alone and, and I think lonely. Uh, and so had every reason to 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 think, well, great, he's going to come home. I'll have one of my children home for the summer in the house. Um, but that's not what she – she didn't respond to that um, temptation. She said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I think I want to become a classicist. Uh, I'd like to teach Latin in high school or maybe even – get an, a master's and a Ph.D. and pursue a, a life in the academy as a, as a professor. Uh, and, and she said, look, nothing would make me happier than to have uh, a scholar as a, as a son. So that's fine. Great. But now is the time to take chances. And you did used to like acting in high school. Why don't you, instead of coming home, you're still going to major in classics. That's You've made that clear. That's there for you in your future. Why don't you spend the summer acting at one of these summer theaters? I said, oh, mom, it's not that easy. And she basically said, don't give me your excuses. You have no family. You don't have any financial concerns right now. You don't even have a girlfriend with whom you may want to be. You're totally unaffiliated. Go get a job at a summer theater. And she even helped me do that through a connection. And so I did. I, I went and acted in a summer theater, and I we did Hay Fever and Real Inspector Hound and uh, Lanford Wilson's play The Fifth of July. And I realized in that one summer that my mother had encouraged me to have, go be an actor, she had essentially said, try that out that it is what I wanted to do. And I returned for my sophomore year in college and 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 uh, uh, stuck with my classics major because I just loved it, but determined this is what I was going to do. And I and um, I, I pursued it vigorously uh, with her complete encouragement. And I think that's a pretty unlikely story. Um, but it's true. More from Tim Blake Nelson after a break. When we come back, he'll tell me about the time he got to play a villain in a live-action version of Scooby-Doo and how he would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org. 
and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Squarespace. If you're ready to start your new business, get your unique domain name and create a beautiful website with help from Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Think it, dream it, make it with Squarespace. I'm Bob Boylan with the All Songs Considered podcast. 50 years ago, the Beatles made a mind-boggling double album. Hear the White Album as you've never heard it before. From demo tapes to brand new mixes. This week on All Songs Considered. Hi, I'm Dave. Hi, I'm Graham. And we're two house DJs who have been trapped inside our drum machine. We love it here, and we'd love if you stopped by and visited us every week on Stop Stop Podcasting Podcasting Yourself here on MaximumFun.org. We're just a couple of doofuses from Canada. And listen to our show or perish. (laughs) Stop podcasting yourself on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tim Blake Nelson. He's an actor, one of the stars of the new Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is out now on Netflix. He's also been seen in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, Syriana, Hulk, and more. Besides that, he's a playwright. His latest, Socrates, plays at the Public Theater in New York this spring. Your family's Jewish. To what extent were there other Jews around? In Tulsa when you were a kid? The Tulsa Jewish community is uh, a a very cohesive one. Um, Everybody knew each other and looked out for each other. It was amazing to grow up with European grandparents and a mother who'd been born in London but spent her first five years in Germany and in London Uh, and, and and. to celebrate Passover and uh, and the high holidays in the middle of Tulsa, Oklahoma, I felt like I had everything because I'm growing up in the heartland and was aware enough to realize that there was strangely something quite special about that as the world at that point was, the country at that point was already becoming more and more homogenous through television and advertisements and and various periodicals making us, you know, making tastes more and more common and regionalisms more and more, uh, less and less distinct. And I, I already had an understanding, as I think most of us did in Tulsa in the 70s, that we were in a special place that was in its way protected because nobody was coming to Tulsa for any attractions. Oral Roberts University, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't a tourist destination. It was its own enclave. And yet I also had this foundation that was distinctively European with grandparents who'd brought over somehow. I really don't know how they did it all their flatware from Europe. And we would have these Passover dinners or breakfasts on 
these European plates with rumor glasses of, of hand-cut crystal. And I just felt incredibly blessed. And I loved all the funny accents at the synagogue from the European refugees where you could hear people who were like a, off of a You Don't Have to Be Jewish album in the synagogue and then go out and hear people saying, hey, <laughs> what's going on uh, outside? That just wasn't lost on us, my family and, and, and me. There's this David Cross album, David Cross, who is Jewish and grew up in Georgia. Where, and I don't remember which album it is. And uh, this is, I'm quoting from memory, but he describes this scene where he's over at a friend's house when he's, you know, 12 years old or whatever, and he has a sleepover. And the next morning, I'm making up the specifics. I, I can't remember exactly what it was. So my apologies to the great David Cross. But his, the mom asks him, do y'all's people eat pancakes? <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, like, that is, like, such a particular thing of being Jewish in a place where there's not that many Jews is it's not about hostility, but just a kind of a vague awareness that things are done differently, but complete ignorance about in what specific different way they're done. Yeah, but also a benign fascination. I mean, I actually felt appreciated. Kids wanted to come to your bar mitzvah. They were astounded to sit there and listen to the Hebrew. Couldn't believe that they were hearing that. It was exciting, fascinating. There's that line, there's a line in uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, Outer Dark, and somebody asks another character, do you know what a Jew is? And the character responds, well, they're them old-timey people in the Bible. And that's that's what I felt growing up, that people embraced us, treated us as special friends. It was only when I went to the Northeast, to college, and then particularly in New York, that I really ever encountered anti-Semitism to speak of. So that's not what you'd expect, but it was my truth. Tim, we're running low on time, but um, you know, you would think that I would use this time to play a clip from one of the one of your many brilliant acting performances in acclaimed films, or one of your own brilliant acclaimed films. But instead, I'm going to play a clip from Scooby Doo Two. My guest, Tim Blake Nelson, played the villain of Doctor Jonathan Jacobo in Scooby Doo Two: colon, Monsters Unleashed. Jacobo is a former scientist and master of disguise who committed bank robberies for his experiments to create real monsters. In this scene from the end of the film, he's been apprehended. The gang unveiled his guises as the evil masked figure and Heather Jasper Howe, played by Alicia Silverstone. Let's uh, take a listen. Is it you getting the lead in, my fair lady? Wasn't enough? I was an excellent Eliza. You were too active. And stealing my tater tots! You kept saying you felt puffy! And the real identity of Ned is. Ow! Ned! I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling punks and their dumb dog! That's an actor's dream to get to say I would have gotten away with it! I got to say the line, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was great. 
I only ended up playing that part thanks to my um, my oldest son Henry. He was five at the time, and when the offer came in, I responded on the phone incredulously, "Scooby Doo Two by on my way to saying, "I don't know." Uh, but before I could say that, he looked up at me and said, he had this very deep voice at the time, "You can be in Scooby Doo, where are you?" <laughs> and I said, Okay. And I uh, took him to the, you know, he was on the set and had a great time, and so did I. Tim Blake Nelson, I'm so grateful to you for coming on Boulevard. It was really great to get to talk to you. It has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Tim Blake Nelson, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs is available to stream now on Netflix. It is an absolute delight. I don't know what I can tell you to recommend it. But I can tell you that if you've already seen it, you will appreciate that I'm about to say pan shot. It's like an inside reference for future you. Anyway, Tim is also a playwright. His latest work is called Socrates. It's going to be playing at Martinson Hall in New York starting this April. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Mary Randolph Carter, known as Carter to friends, has worked high up at Ralph Lauren for decades. She's a creative director there. That's her day job. And in her free time, she collects stuff. She calls it junk, and she has a lot of junk. In her apartment in New York, where she and her family have lived for decades, her walls are filled with old pictures, portraits, photos, that kind of thing. She stacks books under desks, along walls, sometimes out in the open, If you're sitting on her sofa with a drink, your best bet is probably to hold on to it. More often than not, her coffee table, which I'm sure is an antique, is covered in vases and sculptures and more books. Always more books. Does her place look busy? Well, yes, absolutely, it does. But it doesn't look cluttered. It's deliberate. It's thoughtful. It's welcoming. Everything in the apartment has a story. Maybe the goofy-looking bird knick-knack on the shelf over there is something she picked up on a road trip ten years ago. Maybe the portrait in the living room reminds her of a relative she lost years ago, even though she picked it up at a swap meet in Queens. It's all junk, like she says, but that doesn't mean that it's worthless. It's what makes her home her home. She's written quite a number of books now about junk— Photos of flea markets, guides to antique stores, design inspiration. And she has a philosophy of design so articulate and simple, she summarizes it in her book titles. Like, a perfectly kept house is the sign of a misspent life. Or, never stop to think, do I have a place for this? Her latest book is The Joy of Junk, Go Right Ahead, Fall in Love with the Wackiest Things, Find the Worth and the Worthless, Rescue and Recycle the Curious Objects that Give Life and Happiness. And as a person who myself once flew literally across the entire country to go to a flea market, I couldn't be more thrilled to talk with her. Carter, welcome to Bullseye. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jesse. I'm really very happy to be here. You grew up in Richmond, Virginia. Did you grow up in a house full of stuff? Hmm, I have to think about that. It was certainly a house full of children and people, and I guess we had a lot of stuff, too. Yes, I would say we had a lot of stuff, but not as much as we had later when we left Richmond. (laughs) How did you think about your home? Like, was it totally transparent to you, or did you think of it as a special place? Oh, totally a special place. It was, uh, 
You know, it's funny because I've lived in New York longer than I've lived. I lived in in Richmond or in Virginia, and still, when we go to Virginia, which is where my, I always say we're going home, and my husband says, "No, but that's not your home." But someplace in my heart and bones, it's still home. So yes, it was a very special place because of. Because of the people and the stuff and the dogs and the cats and the parakeet Ernie that I had, but I left Richmond when I was probably around twelve years old. So and moved down to the northern neck of Virginia, the Tidewater area on the Chesapeake Bay and the Rappahannock River, and I I think so. My homes are kind of split, but Richmond was where I was born and where I you know lived until. I was twelve, and maybe, maybe furnishing that little dollhouse that I had up on the third floor was where that junker streak began. When I was looking for those odd things to make it special for my dolls, we left that home rather unexpectedly because we had a,、um, a very tragic fire one night and lost three of my family. So. Eventually, we actually—I wouldn't say fled—but the memories from my mother, particularly, she lost her father and her great aunt, and her aunt and her sister,、um, were too much to bear. And so we moved to the Tidewater area, where we had lived in a funny old barn in the summertime, and we started our lives over. Down there, and created a new home for ourselves. Did having that experience of that tragic fire change your relationship with home and with stuff? Certainly, with stuff. I think you learned that even though someone kindly found my one of my dolls, or actually, I think a teddy bear that was was saved.、Um, Yes, of course. We lost we lost the things that were important to us, and and all the other things didn't matter. And then I guess I have to share. With, I don't know why I'm taking you through the tragedies of my young life, but then when we moved to、um, Whitestone, into this into River Barn was the name of our house.、Um, When I was sixteen, which would have been about three and a half or four years later, we had another fire, <laughs> and at this time, we were all saved, meaning my mother and father and my two brothers and sisters. There were there are nine of us. We lost our dog, who went back in to find my father. But the next day, when I walked over, it was a big sand pile of ashes. So we really lost everything, but we didn't because that night when we stood there counting each other over and over again to see if we had we were all there, there was one sister missing, and then we realized that she had gone to an overnight party. We were all saved, and、um, all the stuff, the books, the paintings, the photographs. Everything was gone. You know, I've seen pictures of your apartment in New York and your <laughs> home 
uh, in New York State. Yes. And, you know, in your apartment, there's there's hardly an inch of wall that isn't covered <laughs> with <laughs> that isn't covered with a, a painting or something else. And I wonder if that was always the way that your home looked. I mean, like once you had your own house, was it always was it always chock a block? Well, it took time, you know. I'm very old and I've had I've been collecting for many years, so when you know, the thing is, I mean, when I moved to New York and had my first, you know, five-floor walk-up studio apartment, I brought with me things from Virginia, from my home, like a blue-painted rocking chair, a few old quilts, a sampler to put on the wall, things that were kind of totems, I suppose, of that life that I loved, but couldn't wait to get away from. <laughs> I was destined to come to, to, to the city for a long time, but I still wanted to create the environment. Obviously, you know this by looking at those pictures, the environment that I place myself in and that I've created for me and for my family eventually um, everything is, it's very, very, very important to me. So to start off in that apartment, I needed things that I could relate to and made me feel comfortable and were a thread to the life. And so, so slowly, yes, I mean, it was easy to cover the walls in a studio apartment, but I think that yeah, every place that we've lived, and we've lived, you know, we've lived in the apartment, which is not, it's kind of strange for urban dwellers, but we've lived in the same apartment for um, like four decades. I mean, I think the real question that all, all of us who want to acquire furniture and things to put on the walls face is, where do you put a television? <laughs> that like is, is, is there something you can put in front of the television? <laughs> That is something, yes, that we all have, we've all had to, to deal with. And particularly when the TV sets started getting bigger and bigger, you know, these widescreen, whatever you call them. You're a flat screen, sure. Flat screen. Okay, the big flat screen. Well, this is, this is, this is the most wonderful serendipitous moment. I'd gone into this, let's say this is two years ago, and they were shopping, my husband, was shopping for this big flat screen to put in the country house. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, you can't disassemble my beautiful little front parlor. But anyway, um, and so I happened at the same, the same moment that he was doing that, I was hunting down a cupboard. Well, I wasn't hunting for it, but it stood in front of me, this big, beautiful blue cupboard. And I bought it, not thinking about where it would go or what would go in it. But guess what fit perfectly in it? The flat screen TV. And then I surrounded it with all kinds of objets and books. There have been times when I have, you know, actually put like an old quilt on top of the, TV, of the flat screen. But no, I'm living with it now. <laughs> <laughs> But that was just so incredible. My my desire for this for this cupboard and my husband's desire for the flat screen, they met and married and li are living happily ever after in the front parlor of our room that used to be called the purposeless room. 
because it really didn't have a purpose. I mean, my husband would say, what is this room? It's not a TV room. It's not a dining room. I said, well, originally it was the front parlor. And we then we put his mother's baby grand. We stuffed that in the corner. And uh, then I said, well, we can call it the music room. But eventually, now it's the TV room. How did you end up becoming a junker? Because I don't imagine that there's a huge volume of junkers in in the New York City magazine business where you cut your teeth for a couple of decades. New York is a hard place to be a junker because you kind of got to go somewhere to get the space to have a flea market. Well, that's true. But you forget about junking on the city streets. I mean, it is a gold mine out there. I mean, I find things all the time. So it's not just... And, and, and New Yorkers, that that dealers are very clever. They take weekend parking lots that are abandoned for the weekend, and they turn them into flea markets. But I, I will tell you, it's harder and harder to find those places. But, um, oh, junk is alive and well in New York City, for sure. I have evidence of it in this book. We'll finish up with Mary Randolph Carter in a bit. When we come back from a short break, we'll talk about her other big occupation, creative director at Ralph Lauren, one of the biggest clothing companies in the world. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Buffett, the comforter made better for you and the earth. Buffett uses natural eucalyptus to create a soothing, silk-soft fabric and rejuvenates recycled bottles into a cloud-like fill, all to create a comforter with 4.8 stars across 13,000 reviews without cruelty or waste. Visit Buffy.co to experience the complimentary 30-night trial and use code NPR to save $20 on your purchase. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, and this week on the TED Radio Hour, we're exploring ways to seek out joy in some places you might expect and in some places you might not. Where joy hides, check it out this week on the TED Radio Hour, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Kira. So Max FunCon tickets go on sale this Friday, November 23rd at 11 a.m. Pacific, and I'm trying to write a promo. Okay, so what do they need to know to look forward to? Inspiring classes. Live podcast tapings. Stand-up showcase. The s'mores party. Making new friends. Don't forget about the dance party! Oh, and it all takes place on a beautiful mountaintop. Okay, got it. Anything else? Well, if we missed anything, they can find all the details at maxfuncon.com. And we'll see you in June. I think that went really well. Yeah, that sounded good. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Mary Randolph Carter, is maybe one of the most interesting people I've ever talked with on the show. She's a creative director at Ralph Lauren. She's an expert in the world of collecting. She's the author of a bunch of beautiful books about that latter topic. Her latest, The Joy of Junk, is out now. Do you have a favorite junk store? One of your old books had a directory of junk <laughs> stores by location. Mm-hmm, and, by state or, yeah. Yeah, and I, I was looking through it, and I saw this shop called Crim's Crams. Oh, my was... gosh. Yes. <laughs> In San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. It was right near where I grew up. Oh. And this book came out, I guess, maybe 1990 or something like that. So I, that was probably around when it ended up closing. But... 
I re- I had the most immediate vivid flashes of memory of being, you know, an eight-year-old and going there and buying a lunchbox. Really? And borrowing tw- 20 cents. It cost 20 cents. They told me it cost 20 cents. So I went home to my house, to my apartment and my mom's apartment and got my mom to give me t- two dimes so that I could. This is like a story from 1952, but it was like 1989 to get this Super Friends lunchbox at Crim's Crams. <laughs> Yeah, I grew up t- two blocks from that store. I thought, like, w- what an incredible, like, vivid part of my life that store was. And I wonder if there were stores like that for you. Well, certainly. And, I mean, I remember Crim- Crim's Cram or whatever it was called. What a great name. I mean, I was doing big city junk. Uh, no, I wasn't. I was doing kitchen junk, which was my third book in the uh, – my version of the Alexandrian Quartet. Uh, (laughs) There was American junk, and then there was garden junk, and then there was kitchen junk and big city junk, which was published a week after 9-11. How ironic was that? Um, But anyway, uh, I I was, you know, I was was going from city to city and looking for great, you know, junk, and and Crim Crams, I remember, had great kitchen artifacts it was a great store but do i have i've oh yeah there i have i have favorites you know part of it part of this whole journey part of it's nostalgic and so when i think about some of my favorite stores or junking journeys or jaunts it was with my mother who really was you know the book is dedicated to my mother who was mary randolph as well but they called her pat but we would go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina in the summer. It was really became an escape for my parents because we always used to come down to Virginia in the summertime and stay with them. But they never got away, you know. So they they eventually bought this little cottage in the Outer Banks um, of North Carolina. And we would go down there at the end of every summer. I don't know why. We went at the end of the summer, I guess, because we felt... That was a good way to end the summer to be all together. But it was also hurricane season, so we always were being left. You know, we always had to leave. You know, when there was a threat of a hurricane. But any in any case, when we were there, we spent a lot of time junking together. And there was a little shop called Merry Go Round Thrift Shop. The Merry Go Round Thrift Shop. I can see it right now. It was just a. It was probably it was a shed. It was a shack, and it was – where was it? I can't remember which town it was in. But that was the first place that we always went, and it was a real bona fide thrift shop just filled with the discards of the detrius of people's, you know, kitchens and drawers and, you know, closets. But we always – my mother, my gosh, she always found something. She was a great mentor, Um in 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 my in my junking life she was just a great mentor she had a lot of optimism that she would find something she had a, a lot of stamina let's go to five more places um and she never left empty handed and some people say some people have asked me well do you ever leave a place and empty handed and i have to say no <laughs> I always find something. It's a bit of a disease. <laughs> Sometimes I really have to push myself. No, there has to be something here that speaks to me. 
Maybe there was one or two places. To me, one of the great joys of buying something old is that there are. It kind of contains two sets of possibilities. One is like an almost abstract, almost purely abstract aesthetic value, right? Something is beautiful in some way. Yes. That speaks to you. The second is that it contains this almost infinite narrative potentiality because you don't necessarily know what life it had before it was in your hands, but you know that it had some life. And I I often feel like if I go into a store and buy a printer, it it's dead to me. <laughs> no soul. Yeah, I mean, it's because it hasn't done anything, you know? <laughs> it hasn't lived. Whereas, you know, I I think often of what it must have been like before I bought this P-code at a garage sale in Portland, Oregon when I was 17, you know? Like, I, it doesn't get cold enough very often in Los Angeles, but I hold on to it in part because of the role it has had in my life, but in part because I know that it has had a life before that. And when your home is full of that, it it can feel full of life. When we first moved into this apartment and it sort of became a a scrapbook (laughs) of our lives and of other people's lives, um, and people would walk into it with different expectations of a New York City apartment, and they'd walk in and they'd feel enveloped by some kind of country, I'd say, in the beginning, I was probably collecting things that were more country-ish. Um, but they were just kind of enveloped by, I mean, the, look, what I was raised being the eldest of nine, living in this old house with this big family, it was always about how your home felt and how people felt in it. That we met people at the door and hug them or whatever. I mean, or just please go in the kitchen and, and help uh, carry, peel the potatoes. But there was always this thing about making people feel at home. And I think the things and, and that your home was personal and comfortable and felt lived in. And I think that when you do find and borrow borrow things that have had that are old and weathered and tattered in some cases and patched that's evidence of a life lived and there's a comfort and and there yeah and there's like a mystery i just feel that yes our home is filled with with pieces of other people's lives and and there's a spirit and a soul and i think that when people walk in to our home as they did into my family's home they felt they felt that intangible kind of connection a spirit of of warmth and love and hopefully some hospitality was provided you've worked for the past 25 years or so at Ralph Lauren yes as a creative director working first on advertisements and um in recent years on a wide variety of kind of uh, various stuff, books and things like that. Yeah. 
And I was thinking about Ralph Lauren as a brand and idea. I mean, I, he's also a man who you know. Um, but I imagine you've spent a lot of time thinking about the idea of the brand as well. I think that he was a kid that grew up, and you read you read it over and over again. You know, he was just he says a normal kid. I played stickball. I wanted to be Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle. I wanted to be a movie star. I loved to play basketball. I didn't. He didn't know what a designer was, and maybe he went to camp and. He met some different kinds of people, and then one day he walked into Brooks Brothers, and he, he kind of loved loved what he saw. But you know, I mean, for Ralph, when he he was the youngest of uh, four, and he had two older brothers, and he and his older brother Jerry, they're incredibly close, and Jerry's worked in the company for many years. They would go out um, to Army Navy stores. And they and Ralph would start to to fall in love with things that he would call classic and timeless, and and that that were built for a purpose, like a safari jacket, or some kind of a military jacket, or a bomber jacket, or a pair of chinos. Um, and I think that he loved. I heard a story once that he was, I think he was in, he might have been in, in France, and uh, and he, some, he saw a waiter that had on this beautiful white jacket, and he had to have it. He thought it was it was so beautiful and timeless. I think that, that Ralph just um, created these worlds that he wanted to be part of, but they were all built on authenticity and utility and I think the reason that he's just celebrated 50 years is because he's always been about things that had a kind of style that would endure because they weren't fashion, they weren't trendy in and out. But I know the, I know the first time we met <laughs> in his office on 40 West 55th, and I walked into his office I was working at Condé Nast at the time for I'd helped start Self Magazine and I had been at Mademoiselle and I'd been a guest editor and I loved what I did and I loved magazines and I had no idea of going anyplace else until I walked into his office and he was, of course, wearing old weather jeans, probably Levi's, um, and his office was filled with stuff, little toy cars and, and a beautiful photograph of JFK and, and, and drawings that his children had done and Navajo blankets. And, I mean, it, it was, I felt like I was at home, you know, and, and we talked for hours. And he was so curious about my family and how I grew up. And I think he said, Carter, you live the life that I've kind of been creating. <laughs> and then he said, um, eventually I came back to him. I'd written my first book, American Family Style. It was published in 88, and I asked him if he would write the forward to it. And he said, okay, Carter, I'm joining your family, so I want you to join mine. <laughs> That's, that was the script. Well, Carter, Mary Randolph Carter, I'm, I'm so grateful that you took the time to come on uh, Bullseye, and I've enjoyed all of your books so much. Um, there's a big stack of them in my house, so thanks for doing this. I really, really appreciated it. I don't know if we really 
Did we talk about junk? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> I mean, we could list our favorite flea markets or whatever. <laughs> Mary Randolph Carter. You can call her Carter. All her books are great. I, I sincerely own all of her books. Uh, they are warm, loving testaments to collecting and design. Her newest is called The Joy of Junk, and it's in bookstores now. Every week on Bullseye, we bring you a culture tip from me. It's a segment called The Outshot. So there is a kind of comedy that I call fancy comedy. It's the kind of comedy fancy people admit that they like. It, like, gets written up in The New Yorker and you hear about it on NPR. Sometimes it's about politics. Maybe it's sad instead of funny. Usually when they talk about it, the fancy people, they call it satire, whether or not it actually is satire. Satire is another word for fancy comedy. Now, I will admit, I am talking to you on NPR right this moment. I am a little fancy. I like fancy comedy. But I also like Police Squad. I'm telling you, you got nothing on me. You're wasting your time. All right, Eddie, let's go over it again. Where were you last night? I told you a dozen times I was at the movies. I've got the sandwiches here. All right, Eddie, you went to the movies. Now, what did you see? I told you, I don't remember. Who had the egg salad? I don't remember. Somebody ordered it. You can't expect us to buy that. But I already paid for it. Why don't you give a guy a break? Thanks a lot. What's the charge, huh? Uh, $4.58. What are you trying to do, insult us? Okay, $3.50. Coffee's on me. Maybe you saw the Naked Gun movies? With uh, Leslie Nielsen, Police Squad was the show that inspired them. It ran for six episodes on ABC in the spring of 1982. Or actually, that's not true. ABC ordered six episodes. They ran four and then they canceled it. Police Squad has a simple setup. It's a parody of a police procedural. At the time, that was like Dragnet, Felony Squad, that sort of thing. In 1982, Hill Street Blues had been on TV for one year. NYPD Blue was years away, and that's to say nothing of the the really sophisticated cop shows, Homicide or The Shield or The Wire. The police procedural was still all about moving from station to station. A guest star, a crime, an investigation, an interrogation, a solution, wash, rinse, repeat. The creators of Police Squad... Zucker Abram Zucker, the guys who made Airplane, didn't change anything about the genre. They kept all of it. The self-serious tone, the brutal murders, the back projection shots of policemen driving squad cars to crime scenes, cups of coffee and bare bulb interrogation lamps and big metal tanker desks. They just took all that stuff and added 12,000 jokes. My name is Sergeant Frank Drebin, Detective Lieutenant Police Squad, a special detail of the police department. There had been a recent wave of gorgeous fashion models found naked and unconscious in laundromats in the west side. Unfortunately, I was assigned to investigate holdups at neighborhood credit unions. I was across town doing my laundry when I heard the call on the double killing. It took me 20 minutes to get there. My boss was already on the scene. In a procedural, everything, every line of dialogue, everything that happens on screen is exposition. In Police Squad, there is all that, but there is also 
not a single moment without jokes. The gunman shot the teller. She grabbed the gun and shot the holdup man. It's the same M.O. as the others. It could be, but this one has an interesting wrinkle. The gunman twice is a good family man with no prior record. Can I talk to her? Sure. Like here, they're just crossing to the crime scene. It's a travel moment. But we can see right behind them a body bag being carried out through the open door of the bank. And the body bag and the stretcher are getting longer and longer and longer and longer, never ending like a magician's scarf coming out of his pocket. And then they cross past that, and inside there's one of those chalk outlines of the victim on the ground. And then next to it there is a chalk outline of an Egyptian hieroglyph. And then we see the crime scene photographer shooting a picture of the dead body. Uh, Of course, there is a cop smiling ear to ear with his arm around it, posing. And then this nonsense happens. This is Sally Decker, Frank. Hello, Miss Decker. Hello. I'm Captain Frank Drebin. I understand you had a pretty rough time. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Cigarette? Yes, I know. Do you feel up to any questions? I'll try. Where were you when all this happened? I was right here at my desk working. And when was the first time you noticed something was wrong? Well, when I first heard the shot, and as I turned, Jim fell. Uh, he's a teller, Frank. But Jim Fell's a teller? No, Jim Johnson. Who's Jim Fell? Well, he's the auditor, Frank. He had the flu, so Jim filled in. Phil who? Phil did, he's the night watchman, Frank. <laughs> Fully Phil had been here. The flood of jokes rolls like a mighty river over and around Leslie Nielsen and his co-conspirators on Police Squad. And it is impossible for a viewer not to be swept up by the current. The boss of ABC at the time said that he canceled the show because, and I swear, this is an actual direct quote. He said he canceled it because the viewer would have to watch it in order to appreciate it. I guess he meant, like, watch it closely. But the same qualities that made it a bad fit to run alongside Three's Company or Happy Days are the ones that make it as funny now as it was then. I mean, how can you resist every episode a visit from the all-knowing Johnny the Stool Pigeon, shining shoes in a shoeshine stand, and giving out the secrets of the underworld? Do you know anything about the double killings at the Acme Credit Union? You're barking up the wrong tree with us, Ralph, twice. He's a good family man and makes a decent living. Wasn't his fault he got fired from the tire company. But who could predict that Brazil would cut off the rubber supply? They're nationalizing the industry in two weeks, so he would have gotten his job back anyway. Particularly when a priest sits down. What do you know about life after death? I wouldn't know anything about it. You talk an existential being or anthropomorphic deity? I mean, maybe ABC was right. Maybe people in 1982 couldn't handle it. Maybe they wanted the familiar rhythms of Taxi or the goofy mix-ups on Three's Company or the heartwarming moments on Heart to Heart. But it's been 35 years since Police Squad aired, and it's only gotten better with age. There's no Simpsons, no 30 Rock, no Veep without Police Squad coming first. It's a testament to the power of unfancy comedy. Under arrest. Sergeant, take her away and book her. Sergeant, take her away. Sergeant, book her. That's my outshot. 
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Thanks to building management this week, we went down to the park for a fire drill and we all got free hamburgers. Nothing wrong with that. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to Dan. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for providing it to us. You should go buy their records because they're great. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. You can find them at MaximumFun.org. You can also find our recent shows broken down by segment on our YouTube channel, where they're easy to share and watch and re-enjoy. They're also on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.